we could turn together with me to the book of Ruth, we'd appreciate that. The book of Ruth. If you have a Bible, go with me to the book of Ruth. We're continuing our, our series through this book, which has been quite a treat for me because the book of Ruth is it's a, it's a beautiful book. It's a book that captures uh, real people with real lives who have real problems. Anybody relate? And, and therefore are looking for a real God to help them through through their situation. And we find ourselves, after last week, having a chance to just do a bit of an introduction, setting the, the stage, if you will, for this book to finally have a chance today to be able to delve right into it. Ruth, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 through 6. The text reads, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech The husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Praise God. This is an interesting and uh, unique way in which we set up this book of Ruth. book of Ruth is... It's profound for a couple of reasons, interestingly. It's named after a woman, which happens to be one of two books that are named after women. The other one being, help, help, Esther. Not only that, even more, the book of Ruth is not only like Esther, named after a woman, but also named after a non-Jewish woman, which communicates a thing or two to me, I don't know about you, about our God and and His character, and that is this, that as exclusive as the Christian faith is, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. As exclusive as the Christian life is, how all-inclusive God is in His willingness to receive all. And here we see that in salvation form by the simple fact that He named an inspired book of the Bible after not just a woman, but a Moabitess woman, a non-Jew woman. There is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, barbarian nor Scythian, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. And we're seeing the gospel in seed form in the Old Testament. And here we see an interesting stage being set for the rest 
of this story. Four chapters, no doubt, 85 verses, very small book, and you would think there wouldn't be much to gain, but it'll surprise you how such a small book could communicate so much about the character and the heart of God toward his people, and we're going to see that in the weeks that, that follow. Verse 1 begins in a very interesting way, doesn't it? It says, in the days when the judges ruled. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. This places, how do we know that the book of Ruth was written during the times of the judges? It says so. And so all you would have to do is, if you will, if you had your Bibles, just go back one page to your left, and in the last verse of the last chapter of the book of Judges, we're told that there was no king. This was a time in Israel's history and dealings with God where Joshua's died, and they're yet to have a king be raised up. And here they are in this period, which is why judges need to be raised up. But it was also a time in which the people of God were not representing God well. In fact, it even goes on to say that it was a time in which everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This was a time in which all truth is relative. This was a time where each individual person was left to decide what was good and what was bad, what was evil and what was acceptable. There was no God in the picture. We're not talking about the world. We're talking about church folk. We're talking about people of God. It was these people where it was said did everything that was right in their own eyes, and they suffered for it. And we see the cycle all throughout the book of Judges where they enter into disobedience, and as a result of that, God's judgment comes, God's discipline comes, and as a result of that, they cry out to God in repentance and faith, and God raises up a judge in order to deliver them from their sin, from their rebellion, and from their oppression so that they might find victory. And again, And here you have a time as dark as it could be where three of our most prominent characters are about to emerge for us that show a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of hope for you and for me because it wouldn't be a stretch to say that the times that you and me live in are very much similar to the times of the book of Judges. We live in a day and age where everyone wants to do what's right, not according to the book, but according to their own eyes. Whatever lifestyle choices I want, however much I want to shack up with whomever I want, whatever I want to do with my body, with my mind, with my resources, whatever direction I want to take a country in or a world in or media in, everybody is living in a time where they're doing what's right according to their own eyes. Nobody wants to know what is right. They're only concerned about what's right according to their own eyes. And you and me have to try to be Christians in this kind of a context. Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz have to try to be people of God in the middle of that kind of context. Because I know there are some who think, I could see if I was born 40 years ago how I could live tall for God, but I don't know about now. If you were on my soccer team, if you showed up in my locker room on my basketball team, if you knew what things were like on campus, if you've been in my break room lately, if you've been in whatever sphere you run in or operate in, you already have felt what it's like to live in company and in the midst of people who are completely at odds 
and at opposite points to what you hold dear and true and valuable to you. How do you survive? That's what we see here. But we don't just see that it's this time or these days. We also notice that there's a famine. I know you look at that and you think, so what? I mean, well, every time you look at famines in the Bible, if not every time, almost every time you'll notice that famines come because of disobedience, because of rebellion. It's almost God's way of saying, Amber Alert, wake up. If you didn't already see what was wrong, hopefully this helps so that I might be able to lift it. Genesis 12, Genesis 26, Genesis 47. All throughout the Old Testament, we see a famine come, and God's people have to hear the message that's coming through the famine so that God may wake them up and bless them. And now we're at a point where there's a famine. Well, why do we think that the famine necessarily has to be? Isn't that reading into it? Not so much so, because what days are these? The days of the judges? What are the days of the judges? The days where everybody did what was right in their own eyes? Is that good or bad? Bad. And therefore, it's no surprise to me that in this same period of these people's lives, a famine would fall. Not because God hates, but because God loves. Because God loves. In fact, we see the famine is in the land, and now, like trials and difficulties and anything that could squeeze us, it has a way of bringing the truth to the surface so that we really know who we are. So what does Elimelech, this man that's referred to in the passage, along with his family, do as a result of the famine? They migrate. They move to Moab. They leave Bethlehem. The text tells us a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Why? Because of the famine. So as far as we can tell, what we see is here we have this man that encounters this famine that has hit their land, or at least their region, and as a result of that, he wants to defend, he wants to protect, he wants to provide, and what does he do? He gets up, picks up his family, gathers them, and leads them out of Bethlehem of Judah and starts their journey to the country of Moab. This is not a good thing, by the way. All you need to know is a thing or two about Moab. Moab has its origins from one man who was born from an incestuous relationship. And we saw that last time found in Genesis 19. Even their origins aren't good. Not only that, this people group that came from this man ended up embodying and representing all that their origins have to offer. It's not just that they started out through an incestuous relationship, Lot and his oldest daughter. It's that they went on to continue to be known by the world as people who were given over to incestual relationships. But not just incestual relationships. They were also people who were given over to false gods. He wasn't Yahweh. His name is called Chemosh. And this god Chemosh was big on orgies, and the one thing that marked the Moabites was sexual deviancy, sexual perversion. And here we see from the beginning, these people are not only worshiping a false god, not only are they given over to unbelievable, it would make what is going on today with parades and all sorts of lifestyle practices, PG-13, compared to what we've dug up and found out about these people groups. And it's this people 
that have been at odds with the people of God. And God said over and over again, all throughout their history, that's the enemy. That's the enemy. So much so that on one, two occasions, they've sought to place curses on these people in order to derail God's purpose on their life to no avail. On top of that, they snuck in Moabite women into their camps in order to draw and lure Israelite men into a sexual perversion and over and into their own false gods to their success. And along with that, what do we have? We have this man going back to this place that's an enemy. Why? Because there's a famine. So what we notice is the going got tough. And so he decided, I got to go wherever it's expedient. Where's the food at? Where's the job at? Where's the career at? Where's the success plan at? Where are the options at? Where are the women at? Where's whatever at? He's not thinking spiritually for his family. This is important because Elimelech is the head of his household. He's the leader of not just his own life, but the decisions that he makes does not only impact him, it impacts everyone around him. That's important. Men, this, this is speaking to all of us. Men, this is important for us to consider. Elimelech represents us in this situation. And if we're honest, and if I'm honest, in one way or another, at one time or another, I see myself in Elimelech, and I need God's help. Elimelech encountered a challenge in his life, and as a result of allowing that channel, that challenge to be used by God to teach him a lesson that would result in repentance so that he might be blessed, instead, he sought his own option. He sought his own solutions. He sought his own answer. For him, it was Moab. For us, it's something else. The answer was not to leave Bethlehem in Judah for Moab. The answer was to go to God, to cry out to God, to look to God, to trust in God. Because that, during these days, what was what they weren't doing. Sometimes what happens is, when we don't respond to God's discipline in our life, right? Because whom this God loves, he disciplines, Hebrews 12. What son is there that God has who never gets disciplined, the Bible says? Right? So if you're not getting discipline, you're not experiencing God's love. Here, what should happen in our lives when we experience the discipline of God is a heart of repentance. Where we say, God, search me and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That's not Elimelech. Elimelech says, you know what? I've got to come up with, a- with answers. I've got to provide for my family. I've got to, I've got to. And his got to took him to Moab. Let me ask you a question. When, we, when it comes time for us to go to university or it comes time for us to get out of university and go into our careers, on what basis do we make the decision? I've ta- I couldn't tell you how many times I've talked to people who are ready to go off to college or ready to go off to do something. I'm like, well, that's, um, you would have to move for that. We, you won't be a part of the church. Right, right. Oh, have you thought through that? I mean, have you prayed? Yeah, yeah, I pray. Oh, okay, so what, what church are you going to be at? Oh, I haven't, I've just been looking at the school. I, I went with my folks. So you don't know what community you're going to be a part of. No, no, I'll probably figure that out sometime, whenever I get around. So 
all your time, all your energy has gone into just the school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about your spiritual well-being? Are there going to be leaders that are going to nurture you and care for you and look after you? Is there going to be a community that's going to pray for you and support you and be a group that could surround you? Is, is there a family for you to not only leave, but to replace what you're leaving? Oh, I, 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 really ha- I don't know if I've, I've really thought about that. I mean, if I, if I told you about the school, though, Neb, <laughs> you'd be surprised. It's like, I'm sure. I'm sure, I'm sure Elimelech saw a thing or two. I don't think he was dumb in that sense. I'm sure there's a lot of things going for Moab. But what wasn't going for Moab? Two things. God's presence and God's people. God's presence and God's people. And it's amazing to me how much we are prepared to forsake in order to have only to realize that we've lost God's presence and God's people. You know what the irony is? There's going to be a lot of subtle irony all throughout this book of Ruth. But here's the first one. What's the name of the city he's leaving? Bethlehem. What does Bethlehem mean? House of bread. Hmm? House of bread. And he says, in the day when there was a famine in the house of bread, God's people have nothing to eat. So he went to the country called Moab. That'd be like saying, in the day when... Costco had no bread. In the day when the people of God went to Sprouts and there was a famine, it's it's supposed to be awake. Why is there no food? There's a problem. If I show up there and I realize it should cause me to ask serious questions that get to the bottom. He does none of that. Rather Rather, he gets up and he goes. Then getting to the bottom of the matter. This should not be should be his question. This is God's land. This is God's place. This is what God promised our fathers he would bring us to. This is God's pledge. God said he would bless. God said he would provide. And in any event where anything was experienced, to the contrary, that should be a wake-up call to the people of God. Something is off. Something is wrong. But what do we do? When the going gets tough, when opportunities present themselves We don't think in those terms. So here, he leaves the house of bread. Why? And he ends up in Moab. And what ends up happening? He ends up dying. Wait. Why did he leave in the first place? So that he won't die. So what happened after he arrived in Moab? He died. Moral of the story, death is in God's hands. I could try all I want to extend this life of mine, protect this life of mine, and, and keep myself from all sorts of harm's way, but to no avail. My days are numbered in his hands, the Bible says. That's not in my control. That's in his control. And when I start taking things that belong to God into my control, I start making decisions out of faithlessness, not faithfulness. It's not faithfulness to God that drove him into the country of Moab. It was fear, and it was faithlessness, and it cost him, and it cost his wife, and it's cost his children. You see, you and I are called to make decisions and to live in certain ways recognizing that it's not only benefiting or costing us, it's also benefiting and or costing our children and our children's children 
and our children's children. So let me ask you a question right now. Are you making moves out of faithlessness or faithfulness? You see here, Elimelech is in this story moving out of fear. Rather than using the famine as a tool in God's hand to communicate something to his heart. Notice, who leaves? Just him. It doesn't say the tribe of the Ephrathites. It doesn't say all of the people in that land upped and outed. No. Well, there was a famine. If he's saying what there was, then everybody should have drawn the same conclusion, which tells me this was an individual, personal decision that he made, which means he had the option to go to Moab or not. And he chose to look at his circumstance and his situation, however much it was hard, and resort to going to the country of Moab out of convenience, out of comfort, out of security, rather than going to God. He was prepared to enter into a land that always brought shame and embarrassment to the people of God, then to trust in God. Let me ask you a question. When it's time for you to pursue a career or a job, or it's time for you to get an apartment or a house or Do you factor in what Bethlehem represented to these people? God's presence and God's people. It's amazing to me how many are out of fellowship right now who I've walked with at different points in this journey because of prioritizing one thing or another over God's presence and God's people. I'm sure it was something that they would eventually come around to thinking about, but you know what's interesting? It's still not addressed. It's amazing how people will chase home, career, school, potentials, you name it, and never realize, well, to do that, what will this mean about this? Does it matter to you that much? You see, men especially, we need to lead in this way. Elimelech should have represented better for you and for me. How so? He should have been someone who says, okay, if I go to this land, how will this be in my spiritual interest? How is my wife going to be better off as a result of this move? Will there be women there that I could plug her in with who will be a support group? Will she have a prayer support? Will she have people that she could do community with? You see, a man who truly loves his family and his wife and is a spiritual godly head is someone who's going to be making decisions that fully take into account not just himself and his own comfort and convenience, but everybody's spiritual well-being in the family. Is this going to hurt us or is this going to be in our interest? How about my kids if I make this move? Will there be kids around their age that I'll be able to connect them with so that they might be able to grow up together? How about the community? How about the church? See, these are decisions that we all need to make. And Elimelech dropped the ball early on here out of expediency. This is critical. This is a time in our day and age, where we need more and more godly men. We need you, men. We need you because when we look at what men are like and what men are being projected as out there in the world, 
It's not what we're talking about. It's not what we're about. You are a minority. You are a value to this culture, this city, and this nation. And God needs you not to go the way of Elimelech. God needs you to go of the way Elimelech should have gone. Statistically, what's interesting to me is more women are likely in this nation to get a driver's license, to be in college, to have a job, and to be in church than men, statistically. Statistically, more men now in this nation over against before are likely to want to get married later in their 30s than at any other time. That's not a sin. But the point is this. It, what it means is it leaves a lot of room between now and then for a lot of men to do a lot of naughty things with a lot of naughty women that they should not be doing. True or false? And so what we see here is something that needs to be hammered. Statistically, more likely, it's more likely that when a woman, when a man converts to Christianity, that the wife and the children will. But when a woman converts to Christianity, it's not necessarily likely that the man and the children will. What, is, what, what am I pointing out? I'm pointing out this. You have a significant role in the church and in the community. We need you to be the best representation of what it means to be men in our communities. We see the extremes out there. We see the toxicity. We see the hyper-masculinity, which leads men to ruin. And we also see the effeminate nature. We see the passivity and the abdication of responsibility and just not doing anything about their life. What we want to see is Christ-like Men who are willing to go forward no matter what. Even when the going gets tough, we're going to look to God. I'm telling you this. Look, if you make reading your Bible normal, your family and your children will see it as normal. If you make serving Jesus normal, your family and your children will see it as normal. If you make loving Jesus, talking about Jesus, and being a part of the church, and being about God's kingdom normal, your family and your children eventually will see it as normal. You have no idea the sort of trajectory that your small incremental choices, value choices and value decisions make. Not just for you, but also for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And Elimelech, along with his boys, were seeking out to live for a good time, not to live for a legacy. And that's a decision that you have to make right now. Are you someone who's more inclined toward living for something good, or are you living for a legacy? Are you living for a legacy? Here we see in verse 2, the name of Elimelech is mentioned. And he says there, he says there in verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. Why is that important? For this reason. The word Elimelech means, my God is king. Ha! My God is king. You ain't acting like it right now. So even though his name may be a correct title, he's not living out of his name identity. 
He's a Christian in name, but not in lifestyle. It's amazing how we can have the right scripture tatted on our body. We can have the right cross emblems on our bodies. We can have the right t-shirt. We can have the right things associated with us. But if at the end of the day, it does not represent what our life is about, what our decisions are about, we're only going the way of Elimelech. At a time when he had every chance, every shot to be able to represent God as his king through his life choices, the fact that he went off to the country of Moab and drug his family with him does not demonstrate that his God is his king. It demonstrates that he is his king. And here, another irony, that his name would be that, but every choice and every move we're seeing him make is saying otherwise. But here's the turn, verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. How sad. Here, this woman, we don't know, the text doesn't indicate whether she had a part to play in nudging him, like, let's go to the country of Moab, or whether that was a decision all by himself and he drug his family with him and they had to pay for it. We're not told. But what we do know is there's a very sad situation that's just taken place here. She is a widow. I don't know if you know widows. I don't know if you minister to widows. I don't know if work, but a lot of my time over the years, pastoring has also been walking with widows. And it's just a painful, my mother is a widow right now after my dad passing a few years. And it's a difficult time. It's one thing to go forward with the funeral. It's another thing to go forward with the grieving process. And here, Naomi is at a place where she has no husband. She, she's in a foreign land. Everything is strange to her. And now she is trying to figure out, as a woman in this ancient Near Eastern time, how am I going to be able to go forward from here? Elimelech and his decision cost both him in his death, but also his family. Because what did he leave for her? How was it that he failed to see? You see, a lot of times we look at actions and decisions and choices we make and we think that it's only impacting us, but we fail to realize that it's also having an impact on those who are around us. But it's not just Elimelech that dies. We're told here, these took, after he passed away, after he died, she was left with her two sons. Praise God, at least, you would think. But what ends up happening? And before they die, they take what? Moabite wives. They take Moabite wives. We're told the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. God's already beginning to show the sunlight. Orpah was actually the name that Oprah should have had, but her family, who, uh, the, the ones who were responsible for naming her, failed to read it rightly. And so they wrote down on the birth certificate, Oprah, and later on, once they discovered that it's actually Orpah, they decided to keep it the way that it was anyhow. And here we have these two getting married to these two Moabite women. What are they doing getting married to Moabite women? Because Deuteronomy 7.3 says, you shall not marry a Moabite woman. 
Deuteronomy 23 and 3 says, no Moabite may ever enter into the assembly of God's house for worship. Picture that. You marry a Moabite woman. You go into church. But your spouse can't be a member at the church that you're a part of. Imagine what that's like. You go to Bible study. You go to life group. You go to Sunday service. You go to prayer meetings. But you got to go by yourself because they can't enter in. That's life. I want you to think about this, men and women. Who do you have in mind to marry? This is important, especially at this stage of this church. Who do you have in mind to marry? You want to make sure. Can you imagine that the woman that you end up marrying is not a woman who prays? What's family devotions going to look like around the table? She opens up her religious book, you open up yours. Confusion in the kids' minds. She's quoting verses from Chemosh. You're quoting verses from Hebrew Scriptures. He's quoting verses from the Quran. You're quoting verses from the New Testament. The kids are going to be confused. Brad Wilcox, sociologist, indicated that, that statistically that a couple that is likely that ends up being married of the same faith are more than likely to have a marriage that endures and to have a marriage that sees a lifetime than a couple who end up marrying who come from totally different religions. He wants to live out his, she wants to live out hers. And the kids end up suffering in the process. Where do these boys get their idea? Like father, like son. Notice. The values that you are setting in place today are going to have life-altering impacts on the people, your spouse, and your children that are going to be around you. My children are going to mirror me based on what I prioritize in my life, good or bad. And what we're noticing here is because Elimelech set out to live before his God in this way and not allow any one of the signs that God was sending him through his mercy to lead him to repentance and faith so that he might be a better representation of God and of the faith to his kids. It resulted in his boys. Once they came of age, it makes perfect sense why they would interest themselves in Moabite women. Here they are. Here they are. You see, the Bible says don't be unequally yoked. For what fellowship does light have with darkness? You want the same team, Team Jesus. You want to make sure no reversible jerseys. You want to make sure everybody's wearing the same jersey. Everybody's running down the same field. Nobody's throwing the ball into the other side of the court. We're all headed scoring points for the same team. But the only way that can happen is if we're serving the same God. Serving the same God. It's amazing, you know, I have somebody who will bring up that they're dating somebody after quite a bit of time into it, but I'll notice also how they bring it up, kind of sheepishly, and I'll be like, I know why that is, so okay, because they know what the first question is going to be. Is she a Christian? Is he saved? Does she know the Lord? Do they belong to a church? Can I contact their pastor? What would they have to say about them? You know, clear, black and white, specific questions. And when I was like, well, you see, like, they know their way to a church. 
I mean, he's like, I know they know one. They've been there. I mean, I'm working on them. I'm working on them. You see, my goal is that with a little bit of time with her, she'll come around. I'm trying to reach her. He's like, look, what you want to do if you want to see them reached is get out of the way so that Jesus can reach them. Because your relationship with her is getting in the way of his relationship with her. This is important. These boys failed to see this. Elimelech failed. Malon failed. Kilion failed. These weren't just life choices. They were failures. And it cost them. And here we find ourselves in a situation where God is trying to communicate to us that next to who you worship, the most important thing, the most important decision that you could make next to who you worship is who you marry. I'm telling you. The most important decision that you can make in your life next to who you worship is who you marry. And we're noticing right here that they blew it in who they went after rather than waiting upon the right one. Well, you would think, well, how did they end up with Moabite women? I mean, they're in Moab. (laughs) That's all they got. Exactly. And so as a leader, as a parent, as a husband, especially leading the way with your wife, you need to be thinking, honey, where are we trying to move? What part of town do we want to live in? What school do we want to put our kids in? What community What's that couple like? You meet them yet? How do they handle their kids? I think about these things because I'm constantly wanting to position my wife in spaces that are not going to result in her destruction, but in her flourishing. I look at the women. I want to see, I don't want you close to that one. I want you close to this one. She'll do you good. I see her value. I see virtue. I see your relationship enhanced. You're around there. I'm just telling you. When I look at my kids, it's my responsibility to make sure I don't like that boy. I see certain things problematic, and I also met the parents, and I see some, and I, I don't think it's going to be in your interest. And I look at other parents, and I watch. I say, you know what? That couple right there, I like how they handle their kids. In fact, let's invite them over. Let's have barbecue. Let's get to know them, bring them closer to us, because their kids are around the same age. I, you have to think along these lines, because they may end up marrying each other down the road if that's their wish. But you've got to set the environment. You don't arrange stuff. I'm not trying to go back to, but you've got to, you've got to set the environment. You've got to think in these ways. Elimelech failed because he was thinking purely bottom line. How much, you know what, they're paying $17 an hour over there, but over here they're paying $15. Houses over there, you get about 300 more square feet for your buck versus over here. Who cares? Is it going to take me away from the presence of God and the people of God? We need to stop thinking like the world does, and we need to start, start thinking like God's people should. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be added to you. Elimelech turned that around on its head, and he started going after all the other things instead of putting God's kingdom first in his life. So a guy comes of age like these two boys, and they want to start coming around and dating my, wife, my, my daughters? You see me first. See you in a minute, honey. We're about to go on a date. Oh, those roses? For me. I'll tell you how it goes. And if he passes with me, 
then I'll think about whether or not he can have them. That's how we roll. Men don't just come and have access to my daughters just like that. No, no, no. You need to have an interview with me. You need to have a sit down with me. You need to have a date with me. And we need to be able to see. And so it's important. Men, if, if there's a woman, she's got to be a Christian. Women, if it's a man, he's got to be a Christian. Is this is clear? If we're, if we're in Christ, this should not be, this should not be uh, up for debates. I'll, I'll research it. No, 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 we don't research this. This is, this is it. This is important. I'm saving you a tremendous amount of pain and loss. We're seeing it in Naomi's life right now. We're seeing it in these young ladies' lives right now. I want you to be blessed. I want your life going forward from here. I want to see you flourishing, but that's only going to happen as you and I put God first. Not our own interests or our own comforts or our own security or our own expediency ahead of what God wants out of our life. And so we come to this place where we not only have their name, but it says they lived there about 10 years. (laughs) 10 years already? (laughs) Notice in the first verse, we're told they sojourned there. Sojourn means I'm just, I'm just going to go up there real quick. I'm going to come back. Elimelech apparently had no intent. They had no intent to actually be permanent residents there. They just wanted a little relief. But what started out as wanting a little relief ended up being a 10-year sojourn. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that just like us? I'm just going to dabble in this sin just a little bit. I'm just going to stay away from the Lord, Devo time and the word and, and the church and fellowship. I'm just, 10 years they've been from the house of God. 10 years they've been away from the presence of God. 10 years they've been away from Bethlehem. Some of you have been, maybe not 10 years, but for quite a bit away from God's house. How many people do you know who've been out of the church for 10 years? How many people do you know who, even if it hasn't been 10 years, it's been long enough that they've been away from God's presence and God's people. And as a result of that, it's cost them. And here, 10 years. Oh, I got this under control. I'll be back. I'll be back. I just, this is just one brief moment. 10 years. And as a result of that, what happens? Verse 5, we're told both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Oh, this is getting bad, man. Wow. So not only does she not have her husband, she doesn't have her two, her two boys. She's, she's barren. And she was hoping that through her, her sons she would at least have some life. And she did, but it was short-lived. And here she's at this point where she's in a foreign land. She experienced famine. The man that she was going to do life with is gone. The boys and the daughters that she finally had, she may have not had her own, but she had daughters-in-law, are all now. She's in the situation where she's left with them. How many funerals? Three funerals. What must it have been like to dress up in black only to go to one funeral and grieve? Who knows how long that grieving process is? Some of us we know in our community, we got people who are still grieving after months of a death that already took place. Because grieving looks differently for every person, only to find out her, her son now, second death, 
And she's got to pull out that black all over again and grieve all over again, only to experience the painful reminder we're away from the presence of God and we're away from the people of God. She has nobody to comfort her, no community group, no life group, no prayer support group, no church, no sisters that she could call on. She's removed. She's away. And then next, her, her second son, which is the third person, dies. She got to take on that black clothes all over again, only to die, to experience that death and the grieving associated with it. The pain that she must be in, she's empty. She's at a loss. She's at the end of herself. She's at rock bottom. Nowhere else to go but up. And then we experience a glimmer of hope that takes place. All of a sudden, the text turns around. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Praise God. Hallelujah. Notice how the passage opens up. There was a famine. Notice how the passage ends. Verse 6, God visits them. In verse 1, God visits them with a famine. In verse 2, God visits them with blessing, with barley, with a harvest, with food. Mercy triumphs over his judgment. Where when everything looked like it couldn't get any better, God shows up and visits them in his kindness. That's what we see. Naomi somehow or another hears about this, and she gets word. And she says, I'm getting up, and I'm returning. That's the first sign of a conversion we see in this passage. She says, look, there's hope. There's hope for somebody here today. That no matter what may have happened in your past, and no matter what sort of tragedy or crises or struggle may surround your history or your story, God wants to show you that he's prepared to show up in his mercy. Notice the text calls him LORD in all caps. The Bible says right there that the Lord, she learned that the Lord had visited his people. Why is that important? Because it's Yahweh. It's his, it's his covenant-keeping name. It's the name that refers to his hesed, his loving kindness, as the Hebrews refer to it. It speaks of the kindness of God, the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the compassion of God, the love of God, the commitment of God to his people. Why is that important? Because what has just struck her? Three funerals, three deaths, three losses, back to back to back. And you would think somebody like that would be salty and would be bitter and would be done with God and everything that God has to do with. And yet, in the midst of the ashes, She's still holding on to who she knows God is. She's a woman who's modeling for all of us, both men and women alike. I will not allow my past, my story, and whatever I've had to pass through to shape how I see my God. He's still good. He's still kind. He's still a covenant-keeping God. He's still faithful. He's still true to his word. Not because everything was smooth in her life, but because she trusted in him anyhow. That's what God is teaching us. 
You see, you and me, as we're closing here, are Elimelech. You and I are all Elimelech in one way or another. We've all wandered from the house of bread where God's blessing is, where God's goodness is, where God's favor is, and we have found ourselves in a far country, a foreign land of idolatry and perversion and sin and everything that speaks not of our God but opposed to our God. We've been there. We've gone there. And we have all responded to life's situations at one time or another in our life, not by turning to God, but by turning to what we think will do for us what only God could do for us. You and I are all Elimelech in one way or another. You and I are all Ruth. She's a woman who was born in a situation that has a history of an incestuous relationship. She was one who was born outside of the covenant of God and of his people. You and I were born in sin. We were objects, the Bible tells us, Ephesians 2, of God's wrath. We are born as children of disobedience. But you know what the good news is of the gospel? Is that just like the prodigal son who took his inheritance and went off to a far country, the Bible tells us that he eventually, the text says, and he came to himself. He came to his senses. And he thought, my hired servants have it far better than I do with all the bread the text says, in my father's house, I'm returning. And you know what he found? He didn't find a father who was sitting in his house, laid back, just waiting for his son to crawl in. And I want to hear it. I want to hear all of it. Mm-mm. I, want you to, I want you to spell it out. No, his father wouldn't even let him hit the porch of the house, if you will, before he came out to receive him halfway. You know what awaits you in the gospel is a ring for your finger, sandals for your feet, a robe of righteousness to be clothed with, and a party that celebrates who God is, who you are, and all Jesus has done on your behalf. You see, mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes, Elimelech forsook Bethlehem for a false promise that never delivered, but Jesus forsook heaven in order to offer you a true promise that he has every intention to deliver. You see, Christ is present, and he's here, and he's ready to assure you that no matter what sin may surround your past, it does not dispel and do away with God's faithfulness in your present. I want you to know this, that no matter what you have passed through, God's prepared to be as faithful as we're, about to, we're seeing him in Naomi's life and your life. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Father, we want to acknowledge that we're prone to be exactly what we saw. And my prayer is that we would be men and women who build our lives and make decisions from our lives, not out of expediency, but out of your word. May we be ones who live by your word, make decisions by your word, make life choices by your word. 
Help us, Lord God, to trust in you with all of our hearts, not leaning upon our own understanding. In all of our ways, we want to acknowledge you because we recognize that you'll make straight our paths. God, I know you could do this. If some of us have wandered, maybe it hasn't been 10 years like we read here in this story, but maybe it's been a year, three years, some months. I pray, Lord God, that we recognize you're ready to receive us no matter what. And Lord, I pray that we would not chase after the stuff of this world, recognizing if it's going to cost us your presence and your people. God, I pray that you would make us men and women who stand tall in our day and age. That no matter what others may be living by, and no matter what value system may be governing their lives, where everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes, I pray, Lord God, that we emerge in the middle of all of this as men and women who are prepared to represent our God, not just when it's convenient and comfortable, but even when it may cost us, even when it may cost us. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your faithfulness as we saw it here in the pages of your word. My prayer is that we would at this moment draw near to you, that we would cease living for ourselves and that our lives would communicate, my God is king. My God is king. That we wouldn't just have it tattooed onto us, but that our lives would describe that very truth, I pray. I thank you for this church. I pray for your protection over this body. I ask, Lord, that as you are raising up these men and women to be the future leaders of this church, this community, this city, and this world of ours, that you raise them up to be men and women of virtue, men and women of Hayel, that power that we're going to discover and see, of strength, of power, of integrity, extraordinary integrity. Do this, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.